I would say, like, you know, I'm somewhat of a mixed bag. You know, I mean, <laughs> well, you're you're a fighter, and you you don't you don't you don't you don't you don't like to lose, and and you 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 are determined that you don't. Basically, I, I mean, you are sure. I don't like to lose. I'm not sure many people do. Um, but the, the, the truth matters to me a, a lot. I really, like, sort of pathologically, it matters to me. Yes, folks, welcome to Left Reckoning, where the truth matters pathologically to us. <laughs> so much so that we won't randomly accuse somebody of being a pedophile to millions of people. <laughs> I'm oh, Alec. With me as always, David Griscom. Hello, David. Hey, man. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. We uh, uh, have some good news about our boy, Bernie Sanders, perhaps. I mean, it's news. Um, it feels <laughs> like old days. Uh, we've got Elias Cepeda joining us to talk about UFC. Let me just reel that out. And uh, yeah, uh, I am very yeah. excited. And yeah, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Um, I'm I'm really looking forward to having Elias on. He's a good guy and a good friend, and I'm looking forward to having him on the main show for his first uh, Left Reckoning uh, main show debut. That's true. I always feel like when we do have people on for the first time in the patron show, it feels like a trial, but that's never really like how we plan it out um, in no. our minds. But um, yeah, I mean, Elias is ready for prime time. Uh, we can just say oh, that yeah. for sure. He was born ready. Um, yeah, and then we also got some more fun stuff coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking about why Twitter should be paying you uh, for your services and also an unfortunate update in the uh, persecution um, and attempt to torture uh, journalist uh, Julian Assange by the American government and the United Kingdom's complicity in that. Um, and then in the post game, a hell of a lot more. We'll be taking people's questions, voicemails, and uh, we've got some fun clips for you all there, too. So make sure that you join us immediately after the show ends um, for that as well. Yep, patreon.com slash left reckoning. Uh, also, you'll want to get our discussion with Lillian uh, Chichurkia. Libra. Yeah. I think you got it wrong, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's confidently correcting you <laughs> but uh but but maybe maybe i actually got it wrong I, uh, anyway uh we had a good discussion with her on our most uh, recent sunday show um, that's like what happened when i was on uh, majority report last week i've been practicing trying to say all the mexican states and when i got to tamalipas i'd like lost my mind um <laughs> you know i've been practicing so hard and just, it was like prime time ready to go and i just completely froze i mean <laughs> hey it's playoff basketball time uh there we you know. go <laughs> Well, uh, but should we yeah, talk? Ahead, Sorry, no, I was ahead. just gonna say, should we talk about our boy Bernie? Um, yeah, there's some so, news there. There is. Where do we? Where should we start with his, uh, our Bernie uh, update today? Uh, should we talk about the main headline? Let's talk about the main headline, and we could talk about why that energy is is worthwhile bringing back. But you know, for folks who didn't see, this is just sort of breaking uh, this afternoon, and you know, these things are sort of leaked, you know, undisclosed sources things, but. Um, effectively, Bernie Sanders, some a confidant of his, said that if Biden does not run um, in the next cycle, that Bernie Sanders very likely will throw his his hat in the ring um, for yet another um, attempt at trying to win the presidency. And it's it's interesting because I will be honest, I, I didn't think that that was really even uh, 
an option, something that he was seriously considering. Um, we're still ways out too, um, but I'll tell you all, I mean, we're looking at what's very likely to be a complete um, you know, trouncing of the Democratic Party in, in the midterms coming up uh, later this year. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the board is not yet set, so it will be interesting to see what happens you know, in the near future regarding that. Well, that's that's where this news came from. So, so there's this article here, uh, and I, a few people have reported on it. But um, Bernie Sanders' team says he's uh, has not ruled out a 2024 bid uh, if Biden doesn't run, uh, which is uh, unlike what the based uh, move he made back in. He said Obama should be primaried, <laughs> uh, even if he wants mm-hmm. it. But anyway, uh, that he got hit on 2016. But anyway. What, this news comes from a memo put out by Fez Shakir, a former campaign okay. manager for Bernie. And it's in the context of a few things. One is like what you mentioned about 20, uh, the upcoming elections, which is that Democrats are getting uh, shellacked by particularly mm-hmm. like young voters. And just a, a pure like, uh, uh, political calculation is it'd be good for the Democratic Party if Bernie ran again, honestly. Um, uh, if you, if that's something you cared about, um, because they don't have anybody that is speaking to these sorts of folks and Biden's underwater with, uh, the youth. Uh, and, and so it, and, and the other interesting thing about this is it, it's a memo of, of advice for candidates who have previously supported Bernie or who, who Bernie has endorsed. And it's, uh, telling them that when the corporate money comes around and says, and it attacks you for having supported Bernie, you should embrace it and lean into it and wear it as a badge mm-hmm. of honor, which I really like. Uh, I mean, I don't know how this doesn't work any other way <laughs> um, at this at this point if we're already running from Bernie um, previously. So that's the context here. Yeah, and I mean, like strategically, I mean um... – We've talked a lot about this because I've I've said this and I still believe it that I, I think that uh, you know democratic socialists need to be thinking a bit differently than um, you know worrying so much about the office of the presidency because remembering you know what the real advantages of of that those two moments both in 2016 and 2020 was like uniting and bringing together a lot of people with a shared vision and the hope was um, that that would sort of turn into some kind of stronger organization. Uh, for left and working class politics in this country. And, you know, I've been critical of Bernie um, because I, I don't think that he's done enough, um, in my opinion, to build that. All the, you know, all the criticism doesn't fall solely on his shoulders, but I think that a lot more could and should be done regarding building a kind of independent and strong working class and socialist movement um, and organization in particular in this country. Um, but that being said, I mean, I'll I'll go for it again. I'll go for it for yeah. a third round because, um um, just sort of <laughs> loosely. Uh, one thing that w- one of the reasons that I have been sort of hard on people uh, who have been really trying to push, like, oh, we need to figure out like some new character to sort of bring in as our like big candidate to, to rally around um, in in that twenty twenty four cycle, is that one I, I haven't seen much um, from the be- from the bench uh, that really inspires a lot of confidence. Um, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders running um, and sort of holding up the progressive mantle, even if it might not look like it's going to be successful, is worthwhile, if anything, if it sort of blocks uh, this movement from sort of being funneled every different direction into people like Ro Khanna um, or, you know, a Jayapal or people like that, um, which I think would be absolutely disastrous um, for this, yeah. this movement. Because, you know, I mean, one of the things that's really important about the Bernie Sanders uh, movement and what's come out of it is that, you um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's been socialist. And I think that a real disaster would happen um, if you had a, a kind of fracture uh, between a kind of like progressive wing of capital, um, um, you know, and, and basically trying to figure out which of the progressive capitals people want to be supporting. I think, you know, Bernie running would sort of preclude that fracturing or, or at least would show to any of the people who are sort of leaving and trying to take other people with them that they were never really interested in this project from the get go. Right. So I think that mm-hmm. that's super helpful. Um, and also, I mean, you know, no one brings the the energy and the clarity of, of Bernie Sanders yet on the national level. I don't know if you have this, uh, this clip handy, Matt. Um, but this is just like the kind of thing we want us to be seeing much, much more. And the thing was when Bernie Sanders is running for president, he gets a lot more eyes um, on these kind of statements that he's out here making. Yeah. And uh, this is just Bernie today uh, in the committee. When we talk about why the American people are angry, why, among other things, we're seeing a spurt in the growth of trade unionism in this country, It has a lot to do with the fact that CEOs in large corporations now make 350 times more than their average workers. In addition to that, they receive stock options, golden parachutes, and a wide range of perks. Go to the CEOs, and meanwhile, working families are struggling to pay their bills, to feed their kids, to take a few weeks' vacation, uh, and to save up for retirement. So what we are seeing now is more income and wealth inequality in this country than we have seen in a hundred years. And this is an issue that if nobody else wants to talk about, we will talk about in this committee. There you go. No, I mean, totally. And uh, let me share this as well with y'all because, you know, Bernie has continued as he always has to be consistent on these things. Uh, This is from earlier this morning. Uh, Chris Small tweeting out, breaking news, Bernie Sanders is coming to New York City to visit Amazon Labor and the workers of Amazon this Sunday. I can't point to another politician um, who was willing uh, not only to sort of, you know, show up in this way, but to do it in a way that is really trying to bring power and deliver it to the people rather than just sort of, you know, standing in front of, of these kind of movements. You know, the Bernie Sanders, um, you know, campaign really brought a lot of people into politics, but it brought them in, into politics in a way where we were sort of responsible um, to for, you know, participating in, and, and, and creating something on our own rather than everyone just sort of having to fall in line behind Bernie. And I'll tell you right now um, that if you get one of these other, uh, you know, kind of progressive ca- uh, capitalist characters in that position, they will, uh, they will sort of demand that kind of conformity uh, that Bernie Sanders has it. Yeah, can you go back to that tweet? I just want to see somebody was trying to like tattletale on on Smalls. Uh, here's what you <laughs> yeah. said. I just want to see what that little that worm was saying. Sure. Um, uh, uh, yeah. So Peter's whatever says hope the visit helps build solidarity as you prepare. Uh, to bargain your first contract. That said, that said, here's what I said. Here's what I said after your big win. Oh, okay. Never mind. I thought that was. Uh, what does he say? The, this Don't let it be the- co-opted by any politicians looking for a piece of your limelight. Okay, um, fair enough. That's a fair enough point. I thought that was trying to say like you you went after AOC. Uh, after oh no win. no. So good. Okay, <laughs> that was fine then. False alarm. I uh, I should have gone after that guy. 
and I think we'll talk about Smalls a little bit later, uh, you know, uh, with Elias, uh, maybe talking a little bit about what's going on with him and AOC and the Tucker Carlson thing. But yeah. look, I mean, the, the thing is, I don't want to sound like I'm not excited about a 2024 Bernie run, because again, I think that that puts us in the strongest position to, you know, gain some victories in that period. Um, but I don't think that, you know, even if he does run that, that changes the landscape for what we need to be doing. Because um, yeah. as I've said time and time again, you know, Bernie would always make this point that if he did come into power, we would need to have, you know, very strong and mobilized base to basically challenge the state. And, it, you know, again, I've been telling socialists in particular to really start taking state power seriously and understanding that, you know, winning an election in itself is like only the first step in any kind of revolutionary project. Um, and because we're so far from it, sometimes I feel like people don't engage with what success would actually yeah. need, um, what we would actually need to be successful within the state. Um, but this is the time right now to start building up our capability and capacity um, so that all of these kind of internal structures that exist within, it's not unique to America, but within the American state, um, that will be completely hostile to even a kind of mild program that Bernie would probably put forward. Um, you know, we, we need to start building up those capacities, right? And that that's the, it's the same tactic and the same, same need if Bernie doesn't run in 2024. So, you know, while like, again, I'm, I'm stoked, I think it, at least for people who feel like they really need to have a kind of presidential figurehead for these things to matter, which I think is a little bit of a mistake. Um, but if that sort of assuages, you know, and, and calms and, and west the appetite of people who feel like they need that, I think that that's great because it settles the question. And then we can start thinking more seriously about like the on the ground uh, struggle that will be necessary um, if we ever want to see any kind of, you know, left success in this country. Agreed. Well, um, I think we might bring on Elias in just a second. Um, but before we bring him on, um, we're working on getting something fun for y'all out this Sunday. Uh, we've had a, you know, a couple hiccups this week, but, um, we've got a bonus episode coming up for y'all. We've got the post game, uh, right after the show, we can leave us voicemails, uh, discord questions. We'll be having a hell of a lot of fun. Also, Matt and I have something exciting to announce for folks uh, that next Thursday, April 28th, will be the first uh, Left Reckoning um, virtual meetup. So that will be for people who are in our solidarity tier um, and above on Patreon. Uh, we'll be just sort of hanging out and doing a, a virtual chat with with the listeners. So if you're in that tier, look out for announcements. Um, and if you'd like to participate, always you can always sign up at patreon.com slash Left Reckoning. Go do it, folks. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think, are we ready for Elias? Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, yeah, joining us now, bring him in. Elias Cepeda, he is a writer on topics, political, cultural, media, and sport. Uh, he's been on the show before. Go check out our uh, previous episode. Elias, thanks for joining us once again. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, so, Elias, we got want to talk to you about a couple of things, including the uh, dynamics between Smalls and uh, sort of politics basically uh but first you have a piece here uh let's hear it for the good guy aljamon sterling and uh, i'm kind of in a sports mood you know basketball's uh, uh in the first <laughs> round of the playoffs so uh this is a, a keen interest we just had walls on so this may be a sports month um but uh that but the, what's interesting about all these stories is how much real <laughs> uh um sort of central uh dynamics to american uh, exploitation you see in a lot of these things. So I'll just put this up here now for us. People can check it out at elisapeta.substack.com. But uh, 
I, I want to play before we get to this. There's this tweet here, and then you can help explain what we're seeing. So uh, this is a, a guy, Stevie J online at UFC 273. The look of disgust and disappointment on Dana White's face when he noticed the winner on the scorecard is hilarious. And I'll just play this here. And Dana White's the guy in the background there, the bug guy. Okay, so Elias, for folks who uh, aren't UFC fans that aren't sure what they're seeing there, uh, explain it for us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the setup there and for talking about the article. All right, so this is this is pretty interesting because on its face, what you have behind you, the, the ball guy in the black, Dana White, the, the president of the largest mixed martial arts organization in the world. So that's like um, the UFC, which is like the NFL to American football or something of that nature. He gets a glimpse because this is a fight that went to a decision. So there's judges that are weighing in, and we're all waiting to see who won, Aljamain Sterling or Peter Yan. Peter Yan is from uh, Russia. Aljamain Sterling is an American, uh, Jamaican descent, and they're they're both waiting. This is a rematch. There was a lot of bad blood, and uh, Dana White sees a glimpse of what we're about to hear, which is that Aljamain Sterling wins by a split decision, meaning there's two judges that had him winning and one judge had it for his opponent. Uh, this was, a, uh, a, again, a rematch of an earlier fight. And the reason this disgust is so uh, noteworthy is that Aljamain Sterling, again, is an American. And, a lot of, and you know, he's, you can see it right there. He's a good-looking guy, looks like an action figure, very marketable. What you can't see there is that he's super charismatic. Um, you know, obviously, he's, he's fluent in English as opposed to his opponent, which opens up a lot of opportunities. He's also a really inspiring story. In their first fight, he won the first fight between he and his opponent over a year ago. Aljamain Sterling won by disqualification because his opponent committed one of the, the most egregious and excusable fouls we've seen in the modern history of the sport. It concussed him. He was out. He, he had all sorts of in, uh, issues, including an injury that required uh, neck surgery. His doctors uh, reportedly told Aljamain Sterling that he would never fight again, yet he gave his opponent, his cheating opponent, an immediate rematch, recovered from the surgeries, came back, defied you know, uh, the odds and what medical experts said would be possible, and had a great fight, a really great fight, fought much better than they did in the first one. Certainly, in my uh, subjective opinion, deserved the win. So you have an inspiring story here of a guy beating the odds, beating a cheater, uh, you know, uh, a, a Russian cheater at that, right? In this climate, a, a dirty Russian cheater. And yet um, uh, Dana White ex- kind of mirrors the disgust we've seen all throughout this past year where Aljamain Sterling is the one getting booed Aljamain, at press conferences. He's the one getting flack on social media. So it's really, really noteworthy. And one has to ask, why is that happening? Well, it actually fits into a, a, a pretty, uh, pretty well-established uh, pattern for all those that – that can read this type of thing. And that is depending how you want to order this, right? Where, where you put the intersection of, uh, of, of, of class and of, of race, you have a black UFC athlete who is outspoken and not just outspoken, but outspoken historically in criticism of the UFC's labor practice and the UFC, mm. as opposed to the other leagues that you'll watch on ESPN, 
uh, and on paper and, and like where they have a, a broadcast uh, contract with as athletes uh, that are not employees that are considered independent contractors, despite um, having all sorts of requirements placed in them. They're not in unions or, or associations, uh, athletes associations. Mm-hmm. They get a, a smaller percentage of overall revenue than do any other athletes in major organizations like the MLB or NFL or NBA. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and we've seen this time and time again with the UFC uh, really, and, and Dana White in particular, not just showing little snide faces, but specifically rhetorically throwing athletes mm-hmm. like him under the bus. We've seen him with John Jones. We've seen him with Demetrius Johnson, who they ultimately gave away for but the, the equivalent of a sack of potatoes, even though he was marketable enough to be uh, sponsored by Microsoft and is arguably the greatest fighter in the world. We've seen him with Anderson Silva. These are all black athletes that I mentioned. We've seen it with Tyrone Woodley, people that are outspoken against the UFC and were black. And so that's the kind of framing that I would put to it. Talk more about Dana White. Like, what's his deal? <laughs> all right, so he's an interesting character. He, he first came on the scene with UFC – and around, I think, 2001, when two high school friends of his, Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta, who were heirs to the Station Casino of Nevada um, uh, company, um, when he became president of the UFC, when they bought the UFC. Now, that, that's a, that itself is an interesting story because the UFC had been around since 1993, and they faced a lot of uh, regulatory uh, hurdles. Uh, They were operating really outside of regulation, not illegally per se, but without, uh, you know, in in a gray area where athletic commissions hadn't really decided they needed to regulate them for for a while. And then people like Senator, then Senator John McCain, who was a big, uh, let's just call him a boxing booster, um, came out on national television and called it human cockfighting, which is philosophically and grammatically an interesting phrase. I don't know what that means exactly, but the idea was that it was super brutal. And this was, this is, this is a counterfactual type of uh, uh, Western idea of mixed martial arts that we've seen disproven by actual science, even as early as like 2006, Johns Hopkins University, the study of deaths and serious injuries. And they found it to be a less dangerous sport in terms of head trauma, spinal trauma and, uh, and, and, uh, and death. And things like football, um, American football, even soccer and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so it was banned from uh, terrestrial or for cable uh, television. And, uh, and the, the old owners, one of the old owners of the UFC said, you know what, we have to run towards regulation. We need this to be sanctioned so we can, so we can have this stamp of approval. Let's change our marketing away from this underground thing and go towards it. So they went to the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, athletic commission that you can go to. Their steel approval um, in the uh, the start of the century, the Nevada State Athletic Commission, and it was rejected. And one of the biggest, uh, most vocal opponents of them becoming sanctioned uh, at the time on the Athletic Commission was one Lorenzo Fertitta. When they got rejected, uh, the value of that company went way, way down. Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta, his brother, ended up going in and buying it. He left the Athletic Commission after the value of the company had been had been dropped because of his own regulatory power. Purchased it. They they put in their their friend Dana White in as president. And they took over in I think 2000 2001. If, if I'm not mistaken, hmm. uh, Dana White was run out of uh, by his own reports and and some corroborating stuff was run out of his home of Boston because uh, he refused to pay street tax to Whitey Ford or, or was it Whitey was it Whitey Bulger? Excuse me. Back in the day and uh, and he ends up uh, then becoming close friends with. Um, 
people like Donald Trump to start getting things ha- uh, going in uh, Atlantic Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, Lorenzo Fertitta, all of a sudden the UFC with Lorenzo Fertitta or Frank Fertitta um, as, as owners had no problem getting sanctioned in Nevada. So they started being able to be, uh, be regulated again. Dana White's friendship, personal friendship with uh, Donald Trump continued. He he endorsed him publicly, even gave uh, speeches, at least at the 2016 Republican National Convention. Uh, you know, the his his uh, his partners at the time, Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta, the owners who uh, put him in Station Casinos, which they own, is is uh, one of the one of the most anti-union uh, casino companies in Nevada. Many many of the biggest casinos. In Nevada, these aren't like nice organizations, but they do business with unions, mm-hmm. right? And they're people down from the the housekeepers up. They're they're unionized. But Station Casino has always has always fought that, which actually created a really interesting situation out in, in your neck of the wood, Matt. When when uh, when the UFC tried to get sanctioned in in New York, we had the Culinary Workers Union oppose it big, big, big time, and they didn't really care about uh, mixed martial arts per se. But it was a proxy battle. Uh, happening against station casinos at the time because of of, uh, of, of mm. stuff happening in in Nevada. That ownership left. They sold for billions upon billions of dollars about uh, was it six years ago, six or seven years ago, um, and now they're 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 part of what's now of a publicly owned company, which is headed by uh, Ari Emanuel, um, brother of uh, our former mayor here in Chicago, where I, where I am, Rahm Emanuel, and supposedly the basis for all sorts of. Of fictional heroes that we've seen on shows like Entourage. And although they certainly do business with guilds and unions because they represent uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of like Hollywood clients, they really like the margins, the profit margins that this company that they purchased had because the the athletes, the labor in this instance, um, have such a low percentage of revenue share uh, of, of the revenue. And uh, they also get a lot of their costs underwritten now by their broadcast partners, now ESPN, previously Fox, previously Fox Sports, where I used to work, uh, and a bunch of other corporate 500 and corporate 100 companies that the athletes don't get uh, any any share in. Or when they do get shares, they, it's not any type of um, – it's not a structured deal that they had a seat at the table at. So Dana White in particular has is, is always been part of this, this anti-labor um, – um, uh, you know, ownership. He is uses kind of a bludgeon uh, against the fighters, even though he's a promoter. He, the only times you'll ever see him really bash fighters, and he does it frequently, is usually when there are people that um, that speak out against the, uh, the the practices, either always or selectively. He's done that against some of the biggest stars. He'll excuse Conor McGregor, um, you know, uh, assaulting people and and threatening people's uh, childrens and wives. But when Conor McGregor said he wasn't getting paid enough, then he had a problem with him. He'll excuse John Jones hitting a pregnant woman with a car and fleeing the scene and being caught with drugs or, or being caught using cocaine uh, during a training camp, uh, which is kind of badass if you think about it. But he'll excuse that. But when John Jones complains about matchmaking, complains about um, uh, uh, almost criminal things that the UFC is doing or, or criminally low pay or wants to um, hold out for more money, then they throw him under the bus. So – Dana White is himself personally um, really a right-wing fi- a figure and, and mm-hmm. at the helm of a company that likes to think of itself as liberal, though in a sense, like most of their workers um, that are actually employees, like in PR or in the front office, uh, like to think of themselves as good liberals and tolerance and things of that nature. But 
Dana White all the way from his business practices all the way down to the rhetoric he uses uh, and, and this, the rhetoric he allows is, is pretty right wing, even down to just base, crude, sexist, homophobic things he says, and certainly a lot of anti-labor stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's just an underscore for folks. Uh, that's atypical that a sports league would not have a union. It, NFL, mm-hmm. MLB, NBA, they all have unions. This, uh, we actually talked with Waz about how the uh, NBA one was formed and uh, very, like, um, uh, you know, righteous struggles. Um, so that's interesting. You know, let's talk a little bit about um, this is sort of related how um, people are reacting to say the. I guess you quote one guy that called uh, called uh, the winner a jackass. He was acting like a jackass uh, as as we you know in the context of McGregor, right? Um, talk a little bit about this uh, culture being developed towards uh, like media, basically, and also the relationship that media has with the sport itself officially. Yeah, that's a great question. It's like uh, to answer it, it's like a matrix of, of different things. But I think I think they're relatively connected. If we take if we take the the culture of how the UFC wants seems to want its fans to consider and regard the beat media that covers it, and consider and regard its athletes and their pay and and their requests. Mm-hmm. I think those things are, are 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 pretty are pretty well connected. So you've got this anti-union historically anti-union ownership that we've seen for at least the last 20, 20 years. We've got including this new ownership, which is not necessarily anti-union with its other endeavors, uh, but likes these margins that you could only see uh, with a labor force that is not uh, collectively bargaining. Um, and then you've got a, a grooming of what can only be generous. I mean, this is going to, I mean, people are going to be upset at me. I've covered, uh, I've covered uh, boxing and, and uh, uh, international MMA since 2006 for a living, but what could only be described uh, in regards to the, the MMA beat media as a semi-professional beat media. Um, those who can't just be kind of uh, groomed and and brought along by uh, by, by little uh, things like access to live events, and I've gone and covered events live, UFC live events uh, since 2006, are often outright hired uh, by the UFC, often secretly. The biggest media personality in all of uh, MMA uh, was had a secret UFC contract while he was ostensibly working for a, a completely different. <laughs> Uh, outlet, uh, which is owned by Vox Media, uh, had a secret UFC contract that ultimately came to light. And uh, that's its, its own interesting story that I was very uh, important witness to pretty close. Uh, they're also just bribed some of the biggest names in the sport secretly as well, uh, either by flying them out, paying for, uh, paying for um, mm-hmm. them to cover events, or co-opting their media outlets that they represent with ad buys or underwriting expenses secretly, some of which is is entirely legal, uh, but but um, but dubious. So you've got a pliable press that is browbeaten um, in a what it, what they usually treat as an access uh, an access kind of based uh, coverage sphere. So most of the media likes to get uh, their quotes and their information 
Um, as, as do a lot of other beats. You'll see this in city councils everywhere. If you've got a strong executive that likes to browbeat, um, on one end, browbeat the media and, and, and humiliate them in front of their colleagues. Literally, Dana White does this. Chicago mayors do this. Pres, you know, press secretaries and presidents do this. Embarrass them on one hand. And then on the other hand, close to deadline, will feed them information. You get a pliant media, even if they weren't being bribed outright, right? You mm-hmm. set the tone, even if they weren't kind of like self-selected to be like right-thinking individuals, as, as Noam Chomsky uh, talks about. You've got a pliant media that is really willing to, especially as the sport grew and became really hot um, and there was money to be made, willing to advance whatever narrative, um, eager to advance whatever narrative was, was kind of was kind of fed to them. And they also, again, the semi-professional part, not that uh, professional media covering other other beats in the world are, are immune from this, but they, they just really lack in a lot of critical thinking. They hadn't, most of the, the media covering uh, fights haven't covered other things. Um, and so they really don't have a sense of, of, um, of where they should be, uh, some basic uh, journalistic principles and where they should be questioning. Uh, and you also have an overall culture in the sport of MMA where, which relates to this, where it's time to outgrow this mentality that we've also in the community at large, we've had of like MMA before it was even called MMA it was called NHB or Valetudo. This is like this mom and pop operation. It's underground, besieged by everyone. So we all have to band together so that it survives, mm-hmm. so that we can keep doing it. And that's and that's cool, but unhealthy attachments to some of these authority figures and this idea that we're all in it together uh, kind of lead to a, a press and fans not being willing to to question um, question the the authority figures that happen to be tamping down on on labor rights. And then it's and then we, it's, it's a microcosm of what we've seen in a lot of other sports. Where the 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 athletes, who some of them might be millionaires, are framed mm-hmm. as greedy, but the billionaire ownership, um, they're they're the ones being taken advantage of. We see this in a lot of sports. I think we see this exacerbated when the athletes are are, are black, and sometimes you see this in in you know with with the way that people discuss the NBA, like in the seventies or you know or before the uh, the new collective bargain or the yeah the new like salary cap in 98 in the NBA like when Kevin Garnett got a big contract we see all this con- this talk of a coded language of entitlement and stuff like that mm-hmm. um and while we don't have majority black uh league so to speak in in the uh in, in the UFC we actually have something that i think in the inverse is ex- extra dangerous where the biggest stars are usually uh white the ones that are promoted and so the when when mm-hmm. the athletes are not white uh, and when they're black or they're brown um, and they start speaking out against these things, you already have a fan base um, that is 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 right wing for the most part. You see this in the gym membership, people that participate in it and then become fans. Uh, the people that um, like Dana White himself because he's promoted himself as a star more than any other any other of the athletes, arguably. They're, they're really primed to, to kind of go against anything uh, that the athletes say they need and say, hey, you know what, we need to just be all this together and support the UFC, even though the UFC is now, you know, billion, billions of dollar industry itself. Could could you talk a little bit, um, just for folks who uh, um, might not be familiar with how this all works, because I really liked what you were saying about how they're, there's a kind of, you know, small business or as, you know, mom and pop businesses like to say, we're all family, right? Yeah. Um, right. You know, kind of mentality in, in the sport. I mean, could you talk about, you know, some of like the particular labor issues that, you know, are extra striking? And maybe if you have any examples of some of the things that maybe Sterling has sort of tried to bring to attention to that's created this backlash? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. So one of the things that jumps out in terms of the we're all family stuff is that as president, Dana White has has basically used that type of language. And he has said explicitly and, and different labor struggles have come up with, with uh, certain athletes trying to negotiate for new contracts. He, he basically says explicitly he doesn't like uh, athletes having managers. You know, he doesn't want to even deal mm. with managers. He wants to. So not only do they not have union membership or association membership where they get, wow. you get a seat at the table that negotiates royalties for things like action figures and um, and video games and apparel and then have, you know, like forensic auditing ability to see what's actually been sold. Not only do they ha- not have any of that, not only do they not have any seat at the table to negotiate royalty rates for all these gigantic uh, corporate sponsorships or anything like that. Um, they also, you know, they, the UFC has made it clear that they don't really want to hear from certain managers. There's a, there's the, the UFC heavyweight champion of the world um, is, was actually put in a scab fight. There's a lot of these scab fights, especially happening in the last few years since the new ownership took over, where a reigning champion um, can't come to terms with the UFC on either the timing of when they're going to fight, how much they're going to fight for, um, and the UFC, because they, they have their own belts. They basically serve as their own sanctioning body when it comes to titles, not in terms of athletic commissions and things like certain things, although they effectively sanction themselves with drug testing, they do the same with titles, something which is illegal against federal law in boxing, according to the, because mm. of the Ali act, which I think passed in 2001, um, the UFC basically has control of these, these symbolic titles, but that have real material, um, consequences because for example an athlete that's trying to get an endorsement on their own they have a a a much better uh position when they're or when they're when they're they and their manager they and their agent are trying to negotiate for a deal to say i'm the champion so in any case they've been putting on these fights there was uh, the previous champion before this guy francis Ngannou came couldn't come to terms with the ufc on when he was going to fight next like i'm injured i can't fight now how about we fight then ufc said no screw you we own the titles we're putting what's called an interim title bout together so they effectively strip him of this, right? No sanctioning body overseeing it. They just do that. Francis Ngannou gets put in. They market him in a very stereotypical, one-dimensional way as a scary, gigantic, black uh, a monster. He's he's a terrifying and amazing, like terrifying in terms of his fighting ability. A really warm guy in reality, but just a, a really like, amazing knockout uh, um, uh, fighter. They put him in there. He wins. Then all of a sudden, he says, "You know what? I want to I want to like control my schedule when I fight." And for how much I fight, a little better. And the types of, I want to get a percentage of the pay-per-view. And they said, you know what? No, we're not going to do that. You have to fight in this at this time against this person. So the UFC controls the time you fight, the who you fight. There's no rankings that determine automatic, uh, um, automatic uh, contenders. The UFC has its own mm. official rankings that they use. Actually, the, the people that vote for the rankings are media members that, that they choose. I, I Years ago, I turned on a spot on that because I thought it was a fraught uh, uh, situation. And uh, then they, even when the, when the media, for example, has certain people ranked a certain place, the UFC can come in and unilaterally switch things up. They've done this with Nate Diaz, a big star when he was negotiating, they just dropped them from the rankings, contrary to the own rules that were supposed to govern it. So Francis Ngannou now has found himself. Uh, they took his title away. He came back, he fought, he won it. And uh, now they're taking it away and doing another interim battle. Francis Ngannou, I say all that to say this, Francis Ngannou was represented uh, by uh, one of the biggest, uh, uh, an agent that is not just a manager, but a licensed agent who works for one of the biggest agencies in, in, in Hollywood. And Dana White has come on explicitly, another black man, by the way, Francis Ngannou is black uh, he's, uh, and uh, from the African continent, 
and his his agent is a, a black American. And, uh, and Dana White's saying, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and Ganu is not well served mm. by this representation. They do that um, a, a whole a whole lot. Now, some of the issues that come up are things like, when do I get to fight? The doctor says I'm injured. I can't fight until this point. Um, who do I get to fight? I don't want to fight this guy. I want to fight this guy. Do I get um, more money, not just in base salary? The UFC fighters typically get a certain amount of money in their contracts to show. And if they win, it's oftentimes doubled. So it's a really, really like uh, precarious position they're in. Uh, some of the top fighters negotiate to have a percentage of the pay-per-view. Their biggest fights are are put on on a pay-per-view basis where you pay like a really big a really big fee as a fan to watch a certain card as opposed to the ones that are offered on cable or streaming services. So they, they have no real control over that. Fighters have left, including like this one guy, Quentin Rampage Jackson. He left uh, mad because he said, you know what? I haven't received a single a single dollar in, in royalty check. And I'm one of the biggest stars. You sell action figures of my name. I'm in video games. And all, you know, you sell gear with my name on it. Um, and I don't receive royalty. That checks out. Most fighters, if you ask them, have not received a royalty check. And he said, there's no forensic device for me to look into. The UFC says, oh, you haven't I have no ability with my managers to go in and I have no forensic auditing ability. So there's there's some uh, um, there's people that are upset about about that. Obviously, there's people that are upset about the way that they're promoted. They say, you know what, you don't promote well. There's there used to be a time MC was growing in this mom and pop zone where they said, you know what, we don't pay that much at the time. At the time, there was a point where other MMA organizations paid more. They said, we don't pay that much, but when you come to the ring, you can have a banner. You can hang it behind you. When they show you, it'll list all your sponsors. And you can go out there because, after all, the UFC considers these folks um, uh, independent contractors. They avoid paying any employment rights or playing into, into any uh, employment taxes uh, by characterizing them independent contractors. And so fighters used to do that. They would hustle from a low end, things like Condom Depot, all the way to the top end. A fighter named Demetrius Johnson had a sponsorship from Xbox, from Microsoft. Then the cut that off. They say, you know what? No, we have an official uh, deal with Reebok to outfit you. So even though you're independent contractors and we decide when you fight, we can cut you if you decide not to fight or accept certain fights at certain times. And the exclusivity that you have to us, you're not free to sign with with uh, with other fighters and other organizations, even if you're a huge star like Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor had to give the UFC a piece of his fight when he fought Floyd Mayweather. Dana White probably made as much as Conor McGregor personally. Um, when when the fought Floyd Mayweather, yeah. So they have, they manage effectively as management and as promoters, which in boxing can get as illegal. Um, so there's these types of fights uh, that have over there. Fighters want a bit more control over their working conditions, their benefits, and salary. Fighters don't have pensions; they're not even eligible, possibly, right? In the end of many years, you might be eligible for pension. They're never eligible for that. So these are just some of the issues that some of the fighters are are uh, mm-hmm. uh, upset about. That's, that's a remarkable that's amount no... of power for over fighters. Like it's like they privatized yes. the Roman gladiator thing. Uh, no, that's insane. exactly right. I, I, you know, we talked to uh, labor attorneys for stories, and um, and and you know, mm-hmm. when they look at some of these contracts, they're like, this looks like a freaking you know early twentieth um, century baseball contract. This is absurd. It's actually the type of contracts that are being struck down or the type of relationships that are being struck down in California with like the Uber uh, yeah. class actions too, right? They characterize people as independent contractors when you when you require um, like a, like an employee level uh, of, of, uh, of commensurate responsibility. 
Oh, shoot. It looks like we might have frozen him. Well, maybe while you're figuring that out, I mean, I was just like, you know, I'm no like uh, employment lawyer or anything like that, but basically controlling what people wear when they fight, right? Basically showing, controlling their schedule, um, controlling whether or not they're able to, you know, display their sponsors or whatever. I mean, in any other context, uh, you know, that would be, um, you know, regarded as, uh, you know, as, as an employee, right? Like if you have to wear a uniform that is given to you by your employer, I mean, you are an employee. Uh, you know, the, indi- the independent contract thing is, is bogus from the from the get-go. But like even on the, the most baseline ways that they usually try to investigate that, uh, the UFC is already showing, uh, you know, they're very clearly, uh, you know, in, in defiance of the law there. Yeah, it's such a microcosm of the economy in general. Like, like you mentioned, like the gig economy parallels. And there's also the, well, you can fight for exposure, right? You will have a big banner where you can do the corporate sponsors that you go out and uh, get, uh, take care of. So I'm not sure if we'll uh, have Elias back. We might have, might have some internet issues. Um, uh, what do you want to do in the meantime, David? Is there a... Well, um, why don't we just take a, a, a one minute break? See so if we can get him back. If not, we'll cool. move on. All right. Does that sound right. good to everybody? Sorry about that. Yeah. Folks, looks like we got Elias back there. Hey, sorry guys, we had a little brown out here. I'm using my phone now. Hopefully, the audio isn't bad. I apologize. All good. Oh, no All worries, good. man. Appreciate it. Of course. Um, we, I mean, I think when we lost you, we were just sort of, you know, sort of wrapping up just like how insane it is that, you know, they're considering these people to be independent contractors, you know, despite the fact that they're controlling what they wear. And you were, you and Matt were noting the, uh, the similarity there between, you know, like early like 19th century baseball contracts. Truly. It's, it's, it's really astounding in this modern era. And I, and I think this, this, I mean, I, I think your, your listeners appreciate I put it well enough, but this really goes to the problem of, of, of capitalism. In my view, there was, there was in the community, this community, this tight knit community, that my community that we were talking about, there was always this idea that once it broke through, once we got on, on, on uh, network television, once we got on cable, once there was real money, then, mm-hmm. then we're, basically once the productive you know, capabilities of this sport were unleashed, you know what? It's going to be good then. In, in reality, it's not. It's not really a matter of, of productive capabilities or popularity. Just like you know, it's not a matter of capitalism's productive uh, abilities. Capitalism is extremely productive. It's a matter of distribution. And if you create a lot of wealth, but you don't account for the way things are um, distributed, it doesn't mean there's going to be any more equity or any more fairness. It's it's really it's really sad. Totally. Totally. I mean, like, no, and I mean, like, you know, I tell people all the time, I mean, you know, media, obviously people aren't fighting. 
uh, but people who try to get into like journalism in these kind of contexts, it can be tough, especially people trying to get into like left stuff, because, you know, it is true that a lot of these publications and organizations, they don't have a lot in the ways of funding, right? I've had to do work for free in the past. And, you know, sometimes that sort of pan out for me in the future, but more often than not, it didn't. Um you know, but it's it just like, I don't know, it's like a bit of like personal advice. Like you got to be really careful about these these things because even, you know, even when the money starts rolling in, it always has a funny way of never finding the people who were promised, you know, that they would be taken care of on the back end. And then same thing about that, just of all sports to not be in control of things like who your opponents are going to be, right? Like yeah. the non-compensation forms of, of authority and power at a workplace is like – to, to have to fight like on a day that you don't feel like it like that's a that's something people should be free to choose uh when they're willing to do that right isn't that crazy and and you know when fights fall through they'll they'll quick to get uh um they're like because of injury or, or illness they're quick to get last minute replacements even like at a day or two's notice you don't even see that in boxing and boxing is incredibly incredibly exploitative it's and you know the priest people that have to that have to fall out they don't get you know, compensated, or if they do, it's at the discretion mm-hmm. or the management. Yeah. Well, um, unless there's anything else that you want to note, I was curious to maybe move over to this, uh, move over to politics a little bit and talk about this, this Chris Smalls AOC uh, saga. I mean, we've talked about it a bit on the, on the program here. Um, I mean, my top line thing on this is I think that people, especially like in our audience, people who are watching these things really need to stop putting media lens on like political and social events. And I think one of the things that's really frustrating about, um, you know, I mean, I think uh, I'll just say in case maybe somebody's watching this and they don't know what we're talking about, um, you know, Chris Smalls wins of incredibly historic, um, you know, uh, organizing push against one of the nastiest corporations um, in the globe. Um, and afterwards she's asked a few times by folks, um, you know, about AOC and he noted uh, that, you know, they had events that were scheduled with her and that, that she sort of uh, bowed out. Um, and then they said, well, you know, we're not going to continue to sort of embarrass ourselves by, you know, promoting events for her to, 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 to not show up. And, you know, from all this, like, there's been a lot of people who are like, oh, well, Chris Smalls has now been like co-opted by like the Looney Tunes or, um, you know, things, things like that. And then yeah, I just set this all up and hear your thoughts on Elias. And then another chapter of this too happened where he went on Tucker Carlson, um, you know, reaching, you know, and we all know who Tucker Carlson is, but reaching a massive kind of audience here. And Tucker Carlson really trying to make a presentation to people that he had Chris Smalls on his program to talk about why the left is bad um, and why AOC is a traitor and all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, if you actually watch the clip, in my opinion, uh, Chris Smalls does an incredible job of not taking any of the bait um, and really sticking to the script and saying, like, this is the way forward and articulating a really, really passionate um, and compelling. And I can imagine a lot of people who were watching that who might, you know, be conservative, maybe if you were to ask them, but you know they're working people uh, might be compelled to see, you know, how this kind of collective organizing works. But I've said enough on, on my pins. On I'm really curious what uh, you know what, what you think about this whole thing, Elias. Yeah, no, I think this has been fascinating to watch. You know, uh, up front, I think the types of people that have attacked Chris Smalls for his not even real criticism of Representative. Mm-hmm but simply his insisting on uh, the fact that this work has been done by the union and not by elected officials like her 
shows that she's been co-opted entirely, in my view. You don't get defended uh, by these types of uh, establishment, you know, Democrat Party figures and, and mainstream liberals unless uh, you've been co-opted. If she was truly some revolutionary boogie woman, uh, they would just let them fight it out if there was any real fighting uh, to be had. And then, yeah, the rest of the type of stuff is, you know, veers from, you know, racist and classist condescension to true, you know, racist and classist uh, hatred of someone like, like Chris Smalls is suggesting that, you know, he's basically going to be taken advantage of and um, be a useful idiot for someone like uh, Tucker Carlson or for an outlet like Fox News. Uh, I mean, again, it really it, it really belies how little respect they have for actual working class leaders who are winning victories that the, the liberal establishment has either never delivered for working class people or hasn't delivered mm-hmm. in years. Uh, and if you, you're right. If you watch the clip, you know, he, he's he, he is what what he's been showing himself to be a, a classic pro who was able to get his message across stay on on topic that he wants to stay on and really ignore any of the type of bad faith steering that his host tried to put in there because i just, you know of course chris smalls knows that they're bringing him on there the whole- <laughs> yeah, yeah i know <laughs> uh, alexandria acosta cortez and democrats and so-called progressives hypocrisy of course he knows that uh but he's able to avoid it which by the way like the fact that it's being delivered in bad faith and the fact that it's done without self-awareness or acknowledge self-awareness doesn't mean that on its face, Tucker Carlson is wrong about progressives and liberals being completely hypocritical and not actually what they claim to be. Of course, of course, that's right. Neither is Tucker Carlson what he claims to be, right? Like now he's now he's supposed mm-hmm. to be a right-wing populist and things of that nature. Fine, you know, the guy, the guy has soft hands and a you know hard brain, but I so he's not what he claims either but you know chris smalls was not going to be taken advantage of uh and he he did what he should be as a representative for working people and and uh and people trying to unionize who have indeed successfully unionized and still got to fight it out unfortunately some more he took their message and took it to everywhere he put it everywhere he took it to the widest audience possible made a really by the way a really good argument even he did some jujitsu he got tucker carlson who is no friend of the working uh, man and woman who is, you know, no friend of labor to make the argument himself that, hey, you know what? I'm rooting for you guys. I hope you do organize in Amazon and Amazon needs some counterbalance. He got a corporate hack to say that corporations need to be held accountable by working people because of his rhetorical jiu-jitsu. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it's it's super mm-hmm. condescending. It's 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 super repugnant. And I think it shows who, who these types of, uh, of folks are. But I will say this. I think it's really, really promising. And I think it's exactly the right approach and really cool to see um, people who do direct action and actual organizing as opposed to the organizing that like a representative of Ocasio-Cortez highlighted on her Instagram the other week when she politely asked Joe Biden to please consider forgiving uh, a student mm-hmm. loan debt. She called that organizing. It's not organizing at all, right? Like I'm not an organizer either, but that isn't organizing. They, you know, they, they to have someone like uh, uh Chris Smalls go out there and make this argument of the widest possible uh, audience. I mean, I think he was, I think it was rhetorically convincing. And furthermore, it shows that I, the path forward isn't really through electoralism. And is isn't really through like us being able to match lobbying efforts with corporations. It's actually just by doing the work ourselves, 
by organizing one another. And, and, and that's how these battles are won. And I think that's a great step forward, whomever it is, whether it's, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, whether it's Donald Trump, Joe Biden, or, or Senator Sanders, our hope can't be vested in them. That's just, you know, maybe one part of an overall strategy. Well, you know, just to, you know, put my cards on the table, like, you know, the, the real tension with AOC, and we've said this, uh, or I've said this many times on the program, is that, you know, she she came out of an organization, DSA, that had, you know, just seen a massive spike in membership post Bernie Sanders. And, you know, we had Natalie Schur on the program who wrote a really good piece, I think, um, in Jacobin about AOC and, and the left. Um, and, and one thing that I think is, is worth noting is that, and I don't think that this is necessarily cynical, but it's just a fact um, that she wasn't really a member of the organization for a long time beforehand, which nobody was really, um, you know, but what, what I mean by that is like somebody gets propelled onto the national stage to sort of be seen as a figurehead or a leader of, of something that uh, of a movement that like she certainly has some roots in, um, but they aren't as, as developed. Right. And I think a lot of the tensions that you see with AOC and even, you know, with people who are members of the DSA, which is, you know, a constant fight that's going on. This is like every week there's something uh, on this. I think that really does, um, you know, show like, you know, it's, it's, you know, not to be cliche, but there's a little bit of a consequence of your own success. Like, you, you know, you put together a campaign that, you know, unseats like a extremely powerful entrenched, uh, you know, Democratic Party leader. Um, but then you also catapult somebody who's, um, again, I don't think that, uh, I mean, we can, I don't, I don't want to sit here and say necessarily that it's cynical as much as it's like, you know, there, there's a, a lack of, of discipline that comes out of the fact that like somebody was only sort of partially in the organization and we weren't, no one really was thinking actually about the capacity five years down the line, how we're going to be able to discipline and, and deal with members of, of these kind of organizations. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you, so you see these things really, really publicly um, and, and they're damaging. And, you know, I, I don't think it's worthwhile to sp- spend all of her time sort of getting worked up about like AOC as if like she's the one who's sort of standing in between us and genuine progress. But as you were saying, um, it is an example that like, no, there is not going to be any kind of savior delivered to us from up high. Um, it's going to have to come from, you know, mass mobilization. And that, as I said at the beginning of the show, to Bernie Sanders credit, that was always like a big theme of, of his campaign, though I don't think people took it as seriously materially, yeah. I think a lot of people saw, saw as like a rhetorical flourish, you know, but Bernie Sanders, when he's saying like, I need you guys to do the things that, you know, we're talking about. I think we were like, yeah, he means that we're all in this together. He's like, no, like literally if I'm in power, like I need you guys to be able to have some capacity to force, you know, people to the negotiating table. <laughs> yeah. Right. And people, I think that's, that's like uh, illegible to a lot of, a lot of folks is the parameters of what is considered acceptable political participation is has yes. lost generation been really narrow to you know uh, electoralism and you know after after real radicals were purged from like you know mainstream labor um you know it's 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 gotten worse and worse so you're right i think, think a lot of people took it seriously maybe maybe even maybe especially too because you know barack obama kind of said similar ish things and you know clearly didn't didn't mean it or didn't follow through on it but yeah no i i i think that's well put yeah, and I think like the the main cultural deficiency I think we're experiencing here is that 
this whole exchange should have been greeted like De Niro in that gif where he's like, yes, like this is, this is the type of pressure and sort of tension you want between labor organizers mm-hmm. and politicians. And instead everyone was felt very, very fragile. And as if we need to like suppress whatever's going on here and look at where, where we actually are. Bernie's coming down to visit them on Sunday. Right. Like, so like all the like pearl clutching and just like, like especially when we're being led uh, by actual workers that are getting results like this, people need to take a step back and you know let let them cook a little bit. It's a real misapprehension of what politics is, right? And 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 like and, and it's just cho- substituting our elites for their elites or their elites. You know, like it's like mm-hmm. oh, you know, it's not really about holding power accountable. It's about getting the people that, whose personality we like. Uh, in power, then we have to be polite to them, and that—I mean, that's just—it's just absurd. There's no, there's no real evidence of showing how that, how that, uh, how that works, or that produces uh, any change. Where people really get caught up in, in the aesthetic of certain ideas or movements, instead of like historicizing um, what, what produces results, and and that becomes like a real, probably like a really tricky thing to navigate when there's a breakthrough in the acceptability to even say certain words in a, in a less than negative sense, like socialism. It's like, Oh, this is great. Mm-hmm. We can talk about it now, but then, you know, how much is the term degraded? And I'm not saying about contested because these terms are always contested, right? What is anarchism? What is socialism? What is, we're always going to argue about mm-hmm. that and that's fine. But like the, the, the potency um, can become degraded because if they're becoming legible in the, in the mainstream, uh, there's this extent where they're going to be just co-opted into the the, the way things uh, work with everything else. To- totally, totally, totally. And like, you know, one of the phrasings that we like to use sort of a- after 2020 was something we're borrowing from Leo Panitch, who's borrowing from somebody else whose name is escaping right, me right now. Um, but it's the difference between, and this is really what, you know, if you want to call it left populist or whatever, sometimes those terminologies can be a little fuzzy, but um moment right you know all the way from 2010 to 2020 all across the uh the globe you know you saw these kind of new movements you know reinvigorated and it was certainly exciting it was worth doing um but there was what was it's called class focused instead of class rooted and what that means is like you're saying things um and genuinely probably even mean them that like we want to do this we want this kind of policy and that kind of policy but until you're actually rooted inside of the class and the time of, of the working class, um, you know, you're not going to be successful at trying to overtake, um, again, these kind of entrenched powers. Because I I, I hate to sit here and, and people think that I'm just sort of lecturing and lecturing and lecturing on this. But we have a lot of history of... Um, of, you know, successful electoral movements, not just in the United States, but around the globe of like social democratic movements that did a lot of good things, but you see what happens, they get rolled back. And that's what happens when you're sort of class focused, because like you might be able to beat a kind of weakened or disorganized capitalist class at a particular moment in history. Um, but unfortunately, what we've learned from, you know, 200 plus years of struggle now um, is that they always are able to sort of recalibrate, um, co-opt and, 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 and sort of pull back on these things um so you know I, I think that understanding this on a strategic and material level is really important instead of like a, a moral level where i think a lot of people operate and i don't 
I don't necessarily mind it because hell, I get pissed off too, as much as the next guy. But like, you know, when people talk about, for example, social democracy, um, you know, they talk about it almost as if it's like a spiritual force that sort of is going to, you know, taint you and, and, and destroy you. Instead of what we actually have learned from history is that a lot of these things are extremely well-intentioned and they've helped people. Um, but there's a cap as to how much they can do. And more importantly, there's a lack of permanency um, in a lot of a lot of these changes. I mean, hell, in this country, you were seeing Bernie Sanders um, basically trying to reinvigorate, um, you know, a New Deal project that was sort of abruptly ended in this country. And again, you know, a hell of a lot better than Obama-style neoliberalism, um, but a, a limited a limited horizon. And like, you know, we can't fall into the trap of playing that game over and over and over again. Um, and also for people who might already be convinced of that, though, you need to start thinking about these things, in my opinion, much more materially, materially and strategically rather than, I don't know, I've read the right thing and I know that social democracy is a slur instead of like, you know, a, a positive thing, which you see a lot from people on Twitter. And I just don't find that necessarily to be um, particularly helpful. Right. And, you know, because you could see, I mean, like it was amazing to see all the different kinds of things that people were taking out of the Chris Smalls moment. Right. Because while he did come at AOC um, being a good organizer, um, he came at AOC and politicians in general, um, being an organizer and all this other stuff. He also recognized that, you know, there can be good here. So what do you say? Like, you know, this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. You know, people can always redeem themselves. Right. So he's leaving the door open. If the people who are in power want to show up and do things as you're seeing right now, going on with Bernie Sanders, which I think is extremely, um, um, you know, it's, 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 it's something to be hopeful about, um, you know, like, you know, understand that too. I guess I'm, I, I hate to be like both sides in these things, but like, you know, understand that, that too, because it's also important, um, you know, to, to not just be like, well, I have the right critique and now I just get to sit down. Um, because, you know, we've had the right critique for a long time. Um, a lot of people have had their critique for a, a long time and the point really is to start to change things. Matt, did you want to play this clip? Um, yeah, so I do have a clip here that kind of uh, illustrates a little bit of the problem we're dealing with. Our buddies over at The Lever uh, have this uh, uh, video out about a guy named Brad Langer. And, uh, well, it explains it pretty well in the video here, so I'll just uh, I'll play it for us here. And uh, it, this sort of illustrates the tension we have with sort of the squad right now. Through smart investments, I'll help rebuild a more equal economy. Brad Lander billed himself as an up-and-coming progressive Democrat, campaigning for New York City's powerful controller's office on a promise to challenge Wall Street and the fossil fuel industry. But within months of taking office, he's pushing to give himself the authority to funnel more than $27 billion of workers' retirement savings to Wall Street, specifically to shadowy private equity firms and hedge funds, which often pump the money into fossil fuel investments. Controller's office is a team of about 700 people. We're already spending that money and we need to spend it wisely as well. But the goal is to get a big return on that money by right. finding good places to save. Well, only 16% of the city's largest pension fund is currently invested in private equity and real estate. Other high-risk investments have likely caused the fund to nearly reach its maximum under the basket clause, which is probably why Lander is pushing to increase that limit from 25 to 35%. I would like to discuss one legislative priority that impacts our ability, uh, the ability of our public pension funds to deliver for our public sector retirees. 
Uh, we need the legislature to modernize Section 177 of the Retirement and Social Security Law, known as the Basket Clause. That law, established in 1960 in a dramatically different investment context, hampers our ability to prudently diversify our portfolio. During his controller campaign, Lander received more than $115,000 in contributions from the finance, insurance, and real estate sector. Much of that haul was subject to generous campaign matching funds from the city of New York, increasing the impact of the donations. If Lander's proposed change goes through, it could fleece thousands of pensioners with huge fees and weak returns, while making Wall Street fat cats even richer. So, I mean, it's it's just interesting in the context. Uh, it shows where we are, this post-AOC uh, moment. AOC there in a campaign ad with this guy. And the, like, the, the way they learn to speak the language of sort of a, some sort of equity and progressiveness, and then they get in and immediately do the uh, um, Wall Street spinning, literally. Um, yeah, it's when certain, when certain types of things you know, uh, become acceptable. It's just like any other claim. If, if, um, if certain terms or certain you know, critical versions of philosophy to catch on with the kids <laughs> we have to you know we, we have to we have to worry because just talking about it no longer uh, you know is, is a real good uh guarantee that people are gonna follow through i mean i, I you know run, running for office is a pretty good indicator that someone might not be pure <laughs> yeah and uh yeah i feel like latin america has like like, like pink tide and like the like sort of challenge to pink tide leaders is sort of maybe a little bit more advanced than us and sort of recognizing this a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, well, but- I mean, no, no. I mean, I think that 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 the, this whole chapter shows something that's very worrying. Um, you know, in in general, um, you know, people will sometimes get mad at us when we when we talk about you know what's going on with like the squad and and its relationship to like the socialist movement or even Chris Smalls. It's like, why aren't you talking about Mondaire Jones or like you know this other kind of liberal politician or progressive politician? It's like, well, because I don't I, one, I don't care about them. Because I'm a socialist who is like looking to try to bolster and support our movement and hold people who are associated with it accountable. I have no expectations um, or honestly like desire um, for these people to be you know really showing up because I know where they're going to take these things. Um, I have a little bit, you know, again, I'm not somebody who's sitting here waiting, um, you know, for for AOC to sort of, you know, shift into, you know, a much more radical candidate. But there's at least like, okay, well, there's some expectation that I can have of this person here. Right. So that's why we talk about these 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 people, because, um, you know, we we might not like uh, agree totally. We have a hell of a lot of criticisms, but these are the people who we need to have showing up and doing things if if we're going to continue to let these things uh, you know, how, allow these things to grow, these movements to grow. That's the next step, right? That makes sense. It's like you, if, if you, you agree to elect people based on the rhetoric and the language that they use that seems amenable to you in your philosophies, good. That's the start. The next part is to then, you know, be and and critical of them to make sure that they they stick to stick to that. So they can they can. They could not mean those words. That's fine by me, but as long as, so long as we, we, we try to keep them uh, accountable. But that's the part that I think folks are so uncomfortable with because we're, mm. we're really, we just get the. We, I don't know. I don't know. I guess they didn't read the Federalist Papers. But like once we find the right angels and put them in office, that's it. That's <laughs> all right. 
to work that way. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's too bad because that'd be a hell of a lot easier. Um, <laughs> well, Eliza, I really appreciate uh, you coming in and joining us and talking about UFC and, and, and all of this. I mean, that's fascinating. Uh, it's, it's always great. It's always great hanging out with you, man. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for, uh, for the conversation, gentlemen. For sure. And, and folks, uh, you know, if you go down the show notes, we have all the ways to find Elias online and, and Elias's work. And we'll hope to do this again sometime soon, brother. Yep. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Yep. See you, man. See Take care. Yeah, all man. Right. <laughs> That's fascinating. That, that deal that, about the – I just want to say real quick, the thing about yeah. the um, – I'm going to uh, be on this Nevada Sports Commission and deny your request, but then go buy you. Like, that's like, I don't know if people watch Gilded Age on HBO. I've, I've dabbled a little bit, but it's like that old fashioned style corruption. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, that's insane. No, totally. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, like, everything that you're seeing in, in the UFC is, uh, you know, a pretty good um, encapsulation of. <laughs> what happens with capital. I mean, Dana White is sort of a perfect, perfect kind of uh, embodiment of that mentality from the we're all a family bullshit to, (laughs) um, to waging war on his employees because he doesn't, uh, he doesn't want some of the, he he doesn't want some of them to succeed. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's something else. Well, we got two more stories to get to um, before we run over the post game. Should we start with this Twitter bit? Uh, Yes, let's do it. So, y'all, I know everybody has been watching um, this for a little while. And this is, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Elon Musk's attempt to sort of take over over Twitter. Um, But we want to we want to feed y'all, too, and and start to get to some of the good stuff as to what this sort of shows about the way that American capitalism has been functioning, um, you know, for the past 50 years or so. Um, But I mean, maybe just to set the table for people who have been following this, you know, Musk, um, you know, one of the ugliest uh, glorified uh, government contractors out there has been trying to buy Twitter. And it should be noted that, you know, this is somebody who really does rely um, on um, his perception because so much of the companies that he's running don't actually produce um, the amount of actual actual goods uh, to sort of match their 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 valuation. I mean, Tesla produces you know, when you compare Tesla to a company like GMC or Ford or Toyota, um, it's not producing vehicles on any kind of level like those actual uh, you know those like more established car companies. And this isn't to sit around and say that Ford and GMC and Toyota are necessarily you know beautiful shiny examples of um, you know. Uh, global citizenship or anything like that is to show that there's a fundamental irrationality um, in the kind of financial casino that we're living in. And Musk understands that. He understands that it's very important for him to have a kind of brand uh, uh, people, for, for people to see him as the future. So when people are investing money and you know pumping up the price of, of the stocks of his companies, they're doing it because they have some kind of feeling that like this is the next big thing right so he understands that his image is everything and like you know give him credit like he does this fairly well um despite the fact that he is constantly being exposed for being a complete fraud and twitter is no small part of his um of of his strategy here 
And we can talk about some of the nasty moves that he's done here when he's been trying to buy uh, Twitter, particularly hiding information in his filings so that he could, um, you know, make a pretty penny for himself. But let me just set this up for folks. He's been trying to buy Twitter. Um, he bought something a little bit above 9% of, of the shares of, of the company, um, making him the largest single shareholder. Um, and they initially were going to put him on the board. Almost immediately, he started acting a fool um, online about his new uh, position. And you could tell uh, that the people inside the company, particularly the board, were very worried about what that future was going to look like. Um, so they got some of their more institutional investors, I think Vanguard, but I could be incorrect about that, uh, to buy more stock, um, um, you know, to increase their position. And I've also announced, one, that Musk is not going to be on the board. Um, and two, as Musk started to get more and more hostile, that he's basically trying to do what's called a hostile takeover of, of the company, basically trying to buy as many shares as possible so that he can be a kind of majority stakeholder there. Um, they announced that they would do what's called a poison pill, um, which is where they would basically flood um, stocks into the company to prevent him from being able to get uh, a majority share. So it's very clear now that the board of Twitter is trying to prevent Musk uh, from coming in and, um, and, and and taking over the company. And I want to talk more importantly about the financialization and this whole era of, you know, um, you know, stock market capitalism. Um, before we get that, because, you know, Twitter is a very important um, and, and is used by so many people, source of information, a place where Matt and I, I think as much as we like to get off, spend a decent amount of time on, you know, do you have any thoughts on Musk trying to take over, over this company? No, honestly. Um, Cause my, my problem is like, okay, I, I assume that if Musk took it over um it would uh, lead to problems that would be documentable. And I, you know, want to keep an eye on changes like that at the same time. Like, I mean, Jack Dorsey used to run this thing. I don't know who's running it now particularly, mm-hmm. but I don't trust them either. Um, uh, so like it, the thing that's interesting to me though, is uh, I just wanted to t- circle back to what you said about Musk's model and what he does to inflate his stocks. It seems like there's so much of the, uh, particularly the tech economy that is that, Right. Like, isn't Uber the same way? Like, I'm, I know it's a massive global company and probably gets really great revenues, but not to the extent that they uh, that they're like um, sort of valued at. And like that, I, I don't know, like that sort of is um, that sort of speculative where we have to live with these speculative uh, um wishes of of venture capital. And they, they become a huge part of our society just because of the desires of investors. Oh, Excuse me. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, t- you know, totally. And, and like, this is one of the major shifts that you see in, in American capital that ends up becoming uh, very important and has major consequences, particularly for workers, um, but also for the quality of the products that, that we get um, and, and, and their sustainability. Um, and like, we can, why don't we go here? Because I think this is an important point to make. So Musk has now, um, you know, well, one thing is worth noting, Twitter right now gets 86% of their profit comes from advertising 
and another 14% um, from effectively selling your data, right? Um, and, you know, it's a free product. And, you know, as you know, the old adage, if it's free, you're the product. And we'll get to maybe some ways that we could undermine that in, in the future. Um, but Musk has basically been going on a storm attacking the integrity of, of the company. Again, a company that I don't find has tremendous amounts of integrity, but he's not doing it um, to create a kind of free speech platform. Musk is somebody who has shown in every aspect of his life. This is somebody who is fervently against any kind of speech that is revealing the reality of the way that he runs his companies. He yeah. said he moved to Texas because he wanted to be in a state that had less regulations and was more business friendly. But he moved there because California was getting on uh, to his abuse of employees. One, his egregious workers' rights um, policies to his horrible environmental record. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this with Tesla. Those plants are, are major pollutants. Um, and three, this extremely, extremely egregious example of, I don't know what other way to call it, but old 19th century style like racism. Um, this, this lawsuit, we did a whole episode on it um, against uh, about the way that, you know, they were treating black employees at uh, their facilities in California, including sequestering black employees into a certain part of the facility which they called the plantation and a few other names that I just don't have the heart to repeat again. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he moved because he was trying to get away uh, from any kind of ex, you know, more exposure of the way that he is actually operating his, his companies. As we talked about too, in Brownsville, um, he's basically with his, uh, you know, politicians that he's effectively bought out is, has been harassing, um, a young activist, uh, there with the full power of, of the state, um, as Matt alluded to at the beginning of the show. Um, this is somebody who called uh, um, someone who is rescuing children who are trapped in a cave a pedophile because he didn't want to use Musk's toy boat uh, to do it. Right. Like Musk is not somebody who's particularly interested in, in, in free speech. He is somebody who wants to use all the tools at his disposal to try to silence people. Um, and, and particularly, um, you know, what he does now is he tries to flood like the end zone effectively um, with kind of nonsense stories, he knows that if he tweets something outrageous, it will be the first thing uh, that will be written about when it comes to Tesla and always seems to be doing this when, you know, a rocket launch goes bad or it turns out that a product that they were going to be launching is going to be delayed or is malfunctioned, etc. Right. Like he knows how to play this game. And I think he would be very, very happy to be in a position of power and at a, at a company like Twitter that is, again, very, very crucial uh, for his brand um, and for his bottom line um, so that he it's a can threat have to his brand and bottom line, frankly. Yeah. Um, and Okay, so let's but let's let's talk about what this really really exposes um, about modern kind of financial capitalism because I, I think that some people aren't as familiar with this um, and and the game that Musk has been playing I think has been particularly cynical. So I, I'm not going to bring up the tweet here, but here it is quoted in an article. Um, He's been making a big stink now because he's waging war on the board of Twitter. Again, who are no angels. Um, but he's been making this point lately that – Lord, where did it go? Oh, the, the Twitter board collectively um, – uh, collectively owns almost no shares exclamation point objectively their economic interests are simply not aligned uh with mm. the shareholders 
And a lot of people see this, and you, of course, he has a sneak of fans who you know praise anything that he says. But this is a very revealing um, thing, not just about Musk, but the way that modern American capitalism sort of functions, right? Because a lot of people see something like that. It's like, well, Musk is just looking out for the normal guy. I'm going to tell you right now, there are not very many normal people um, who are invested in Twitter from the get-go, right? But there's this kind of mentality, right? That the big mean board is trying to wage war on the poor defenseless defenseless shareholders. This has been a crucial kind of framing um, for financial capitalism to sort of wage war on all other forms of, of capitalists. And remember, I think it's important for socialists to understand too um, that, you know, capitalists have a general shared interest, but they compete with each other and they're different sections of the capitalist class. And it's worth understanding who has the upper hand, you know, traditionally the fight um, between, you know, the kind of financial capital um, was between financial capital and industrial capital. And I'll tell you right now, which one won, it's been financial capital. And that has had incredible um, consequences uh, for working people in particular, right? Because if you don't have um, as much of the people who are leading and controlling these companies invested in actual material production, right? The actual producing of goods and services that are consumed, um, you have people who want to use financialization and financial tricks um, to basically boost up their bottom line with no regard for the workers in the company, no regard for the products that they're selling. Um, and this was a victory that came out of capitalist crisis. And I'll just put this up real quick so people can uh, get what I mean. Uh, this is from a really great book that you should read if you haven't. It's you know a few years old, um, but it, it still paints, oh, Jesus Christ, um, a really great, excuse me, Matt. There you go. <laughs> Um, excuse me one second. This is from uh, Doug Henwood's uh, book. Why is this not working for me? Um, Doug Henwood's book, uh, After the New Economy from 2003. As the economy soured in the 1970s and with its profits and stock prices, stockholders woke from their passivity and demanded that the firms be run in their interests rather than that of managers or some broader good. As a result, the interests of managers and board members were supposed to be aligned with those of stockholders, a realignment guaranteed by replacing salaries with stock options. So the, the point here is that you see this big shift in American capital. Um, in the 70s, where people who are running the companies, their financial packages are directly tied to the price of the stock. Um, so that that is the, that is where they're deriving the most of their income from um, and, and, the, and the most of their bounty from. And the idea for this was that it would mean that they would always be looking out for the shareholders above all else. Right. Um and what this has meant is you've seen what happens after this. You see massive amounts of outsourcing. You see massive amounts of companies being completely gutted. Um, you have people um, like a, a former presidential candidate, Mitt Romney, Bain's Capital, you know, who do things like come into a company, completely gut it, and make incredible amounts of profit, right? A really, really negative kind of vampiric aspect of, of capital that is actually disruptive to production itself, right? It makes a profit for the people who are invested, um, but it has a net drag on our economy as a whole, and most certainly everyday workers. And this has been a, a shift that I think a lot of people don't understand, um, but it has been absolutely crucial in creating the kind of paradigm and world that we're living in today. So going back to the Twitter you know, fiasco, it's not necessarily saying that the board itself is some kind of group of, you know, 
angels who are trying to look out for the common Twitter user. They're abusing you. And, and we'll talk in just a second about some ways that we could do something different. Um, regarding that but it's that this kind of common sense wisdom that musk is trying to lean on here that you know regarding the the price of the stock above all else above even the service itself um is somehow a good um is completely erroneous and shows and exposes a really really dangerous but also um you know now dominant way of viewing the 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 most popular form of of you know of production in this country which is the the corporation yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a, that is a, a really interesting structural reason for me to pay attention to a story that uh, I'll be honest, I wasn't <laughs> that closely. <laughs> I mean, um, Musk, I've just, well, I, I've just reached my capacity on Musk, right? Like it's like, Oh no, I mean, me the, totally. That's why I didn't want to focus yeah. on the, the drama. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I saw that and it irked me because I, you could see, cause he instructs so many people um, you know, because he has such a big influence on on a lot of kind of impressionable folks um, that it, it drives me crazy because, again, the people who are the most excited um, about Musk, you know, saying these kind of things are people who have no real skin in the game in the sense of themselves being, you know, personal stockholders. But there's this kind of like little guy thing that Musk tries to play, you know, one of the wealthiest people in the world tries to play that he's just looking out for the mom and pop, uh, you know, mom pa who are invested in twitter stock right which is complete bullshit and it also is not necessarily a good thing for companies to be overly invested um and looking for their shareholders above all else but let's talk about um you know a way out of this and it's not the only solution it certainly is a building block i think and what we would like to do with a lot of these companies but um you know people know this argument that you know, social media companies, you're the product, you create the value for them. You are the ones that are making all of this money uh, for these companies. Why are you not one having more say in the way that they're run? Um, and two, um, enjoying some of the fruits of, uh, you know, the content that, that you're producing for them. And, uh, you know, a lot has been, a lot of really great work has been uh, written on some different ways to kind of remodel and refashion these um, companies under, you know, kind of social democratic or even socialist model. And I think this video right here from a uh, former Greek finance minister and radical Yanis Varoufakis shows a pretty interesting way of thinking about um, some things that we could do in the meantime, in the short term, that I think you could actually create a lot of um, political support for and could certainly do under the current paradigms here. Uh, but this is Varoufakis talking about some different models uh, for the way that we could interact with these uh, uh, with these companies. Take, for instance, um, the big tech companies, Google, Facebook, and so on. They make huge quantities of money from, effectively, your work. Every time you search something on the Google engine, every time you post something on Twitter, on Facebook, you're contributing to the capital stock of that company. This is unique in the history of capitalism. Consumers are creating the capital stock, not only buying services, Actually, we don't buy services, they're free services. But we help build up the capital stock. Now, why shouldn't a percentage of the shares of that capital belong to the public? So the idea is to say to them, you want to operate in Europe? 10% of your shares will have to go into a trust fund. So every child has a trust fund, not only the rich kids. And effectively, this is not taxation. You have a certain amount of capital, certain amount of shares, not you and me personally, but as a society, the dividends, the profits, flow into that uh, fund, 
and then they are distributed to every person because we all use those services. We are all subject to the internet and so on and so forth. So that's a fundamental difference. I think this is the way for the, of the future. Totally. And I mean, I, I think these kind of creative models um, were some of the better aspects of the way that many of us were thinking at the height of, you know, that kind of left populist movement, both with Sanders and um, Corbyn in the UK of how we can start to take back, um, you know, so much of the power and the wealth that is, you know, controlled by these companies and start to find ways to direct it into social good, uh, which will only, in my opinion, if these things are, you know, <laughs> were actually tried, um, increase for further and further support um, for you know, more of these companies to be taken either completely public um, or under social control. Yeah. And um, I think like a few other things uh, could be forced on. And I, I, I wish I followed like the EU in what they're doing for like tech companies and stuff like that. But like, yeah. it seems to me that when you're served an advertisement, you should see what the advertiser saw when they decided to serve that to you. So like what demographic information, what sort of search information, like that question of, is this thing listening to me? And is that why all of a sudden I'm getting like ads for this product or that product? Mm -hmm. that, should, that should be a question that you can answer by clicking on the ad, uh, in my opinion. Um, and, and like that sort of stuff, like we should have ownership over what is we're subjected to uh, online and uh, and I think the ad, ads entirely should be um, a, like nationalized basically um, <laughs> I don't know Totally, totally. Well, we got one more thing to get to before we go over the post game. But remember, you can join us at the post game. You can get us voicemails. We'll leave it. Why don't we pop it up right here so people can get some in now? Um, you can leave us a voicemail at one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four, and we will be uh, listening to those in the post game. You get access to that patreon.com slash left reckoning. You get the post game, and you also get the bonus episodes um, as well. So be sure. Um, if you've been liking the work and the conversation that we've been having, uh, to not miss out on the other two thirds of uh, of this program, um, it really is a uh, it really is a lot of fun, and we try to make you know make sure that we can get as much of this you know public facing as possible. But um, all of this support really really does help us um, you know continue to expand and grow this program. Absolutely. Um, well, let's get to this story, Matt. It's. It, it, it's tough because I don't have a, a nice spin. I usually try to find, you know, something that, that we can do about this. And, you know, the only thing we can really do here um, is continue to ratchet up pressure and not allow the kind of lies um, and, and deceit that and particularly in America and particularly with liberal America, um, you know, have become so prominent. I'm talking about uh, Julian Assange. Julian Assange is a journalist uh, who the American government right now is trying to extradite uh, to the United States so that they can torture him for exposing American war crimes. Um, today, a UK court um, ordered that Julian Assange will be extradited uh, to the United States um, at the behest of Biden following through on a, a Trump-era policy here. Uh, the UK Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, um, who's a Tory, is sort of the last uh, hurdle um, here, and she will be the one who will be signing off on Julian Assange to be brought into an American prison. And, uh, you know, I, I know that there's some potential legal challenges that can be made, and I hope that they are made. 
um, and explored fully. Um, but it's looking more and more likely that uh, Julian Assange will be brought into uh, the United States again to be, you know, held uh, in, in prison for exposing some of the most brutal American war crimes. Just to set the table again for folks, remember the UN Special Rapporteur on on torture um, has said that these extradition. Um, this extradition attempt, um, you know, would be a disaster, saying, quote, um, Assange will be exposed to a real risk of serious violation of his human rights, including his freedom of expression, his right to a fair trial and the prohibition of torture and other cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment. Um, Agnes uh, Calamard, uh, Amnesty International Secretary General, said the extradition of Julian Assange would also be devastating for press freedom and for the public who have a right to know what their governments are doing in their name, which is undoubtedly true. Remember, Assange has been in prison now, has not been free, um, you know, to walk around the streets, uh, to live his life, um, you know, to see his children outside of these particular confines that he's been in for nearly a decade now. And he's spent the last four years in one of the United Kingdom's most brutal prisons, Belmarsh. And this is just a, a continuation of Biden's war on, on whistleblowers. The Trump administration put forward 18 indi- indictments against Assange, including violating the Espionage Act, um, which they're charging uh, against Julian Assange. Remember, the U.S. Espionage Act, quote, says to convey false reports or false statements with intent to interfere with the operation or success of the military or naval forces of the United States or to promote the success of its enemies when the United States is at war to cause or to attempt um, to cause subordination, disloyalty, mutiny, refusal of duty in the military or naval forces of the United States. This is the most broad and anti-free speech clause, really, that we have in the United States. The espionage is an absolutely brutal, brutal um, part of, of, of our legal system and is a very clear affront to any kind of pretenses of, of democracy. Remember, this has been only utilized in very small cases, notably Eugene Debs, the leader of the American Socialist Party, was jailed for violating the Espionage Act because of his opposition to the great imperial war of World War I. The government right now is so clearly trying to get revenge uh, while increasing their ability to attack press freedom and silence whistleblowers. I do not have patience anymore for people getting worked up about Hillary Clinton and the emails that were leaked uh, by WikiLeaks because, one, Assange should face no punishment for that. You can be mad that Hillary Clinton was saying the things that she was saying and that those things got exposed personally. But if you are going to sit here and say that journalists do not have the ability or the responsibility um, to bring light information to the public about major, important, powerful figures like the president, somebody who's trying to become the president of the United States, you've got some serious issues. But all of that aside, right? Again, I have no patience for that argument, but all of that aside, that is not what he is being charged for. He is being charged for exposing American war crimes, where U.S. soldiers fired and killed a host of journalists, where the U.S. military was engaged in massive torture operations, right? The United States government is attacking Assange, just like they've been attacking Chelsea Manning and have not allowed her to have any peace after the horrors that she has experienced. Um, 
he he continue Assange continues to be targeted again for exposing the most brutal acts of the American occupation um, invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. He's faced threats against his life. Um, he has um, he's been he's been personally abused by American agents. The Trump administration, right, was speaking with the CIA about ways to assassinate Julian Assange. Julian Assange's children have had their diapers stolen by Spanish uh, private investigators who were trying to get their DNA. Can you imagine the horror knowing the history of this country and the brutality with which it treats its enemies? Um, and particularly the CIA, the fear that any human being would have not only for themselves, but for their loved ones and their children. If, you know, if you were alerted, something like that happened to somebody close to you, this has been a, a slow moving horror that has been happening for a long time. And I know it's, it's can be sort of frustrating because, you know, the, the fundamental facts of the matter haven't changed, right? But that is a part of this game here is to put him through an excruciatingly slow um, legal process through horrible threats against his life and the lives of his family, um, you know, so that people forget about him. Why do you think there's now been a decades-long attempt to convince Americans and particularly liberal Americans that Assange who exposed the war crimes of both of both Bush, right? Supposedly the enemy of liberal America. And then Obama is a criminal. It has been a massive operation to try to manufacture consent, manufacture silence on what is the most clear example of uh, out of control government trying to threaten and attack journalists. This is bad enough on what it's doing to this human being and to their family and the people close to Julian. Um, but this has a major effect. I, you know, I, I think that should move you enough, but you know, this affects all of us on a very deep level. This affects what news organizations are willing to publish. Major news organizations right now are being advised by their legal teams to start to change their protocols to prevent them from being targeted by the government. You know, this is things that will have knockdown effects, like silencing important revelations. Remember um, the the incredible exposition of what was going on with the U.S. government um, in trying to uh, in the way that they were trying to imprison and embarrass Lula da Silva. Right. This is the kind of stuff that they're trying to silence. Um, and Lord in heaven, for those in independent media, people who don't have the luxury of well-financed legal teams to protect them, the threat of being targeted as an individual by the United States has a massively chilling effect. The government and the Biden administration, and again, you know, if, if you're not somebody who's motivated by politics for the same reason as me, um, you know, you should remind people uh, that Biden is now continuing a Trump policy. Right. Joe Biden is supposed to reset this country. Um, Joe Biden is now continuing one of one of the more egregious aspects of the Trump presidency um, to attack Assange. Um, the government is counting on our apathy and many people's manufactured hatred of Assange to wage war on him and even you know more largely to wage war on journalists as a whole. And we can't allow a future where telling the truth means risking literally everything. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the thing to underline is Assange is an Australian citizen, and yeah. this is a, it is, and this is basically the the um, sort of 
grand reason they want to do this apart from, you know, petty cruelty is that, that message that no matter where you are in the globe, if you expose things that we don't want you to expose, we can bring you here and prosecute you. And that is an insane, that is an insane thing for any nation to be able to do. Totally, totally. And, you know, I think there's a limit to how much we can point out the hypocrisy. But when, you know, liberal America, understandably, um, because, you know, the the system that they have for press freedom in Russia is absolutely dystopian, um, are very, very willing, uh, you know, to condemn Putin for his attacks on, on journalism in that country, should be the first ones standing up to say that the United States should not be um, – not only trying to silence journalists, but as Matt was noting, foreign journalists um, who are who are exposing you know American crimes abroad. I mean, it is the hypocrisy is just rank on this shit, um, and they are counting on silence, and they're also counting on people who feel the same way that we do, sort of exhaustion with this, because you know the point of it being a ten year long process now is to make it so. You know, the uproar isn't as strong because, you know, the the memory is distant uh, for people of what it was like when those revelations were made. Right. Um, and, and we just cannot allow that to allow that to happen. Absolutely. Well, y'all, on that note, uh, we got some fire with us uh, to go into the post game. Uh, join us over there probably pretty soon. Um, we'll be taking questions uh, from the Discord. Again, you can leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from y'all at 1-940-289-7234, patreon.com slash leftreckoning. See patrons in a couple minutes um, and uh, see the rest of y'all next week. Peace. All right, we'll do that.